0: tap uh after a long absence uh we actually have ashley back this week hi hi
1: i'm back
0: i missed you so much
1: we live together i
0: know but just hearing (laughs) your voice on the podcast
1: oh it doesn't it's
0: true we actually had a lot of write-ins i believe there were three thousand emails oh
1: my god okay where was
0: ashley's voice the the podcast like actually had several people say that they would prefer to not have me and just have you
1: well, I didn't want to say anything,
0: but... Wait, were you the one writing the emails? <laughs> um, Writes
1: from work email.
0: <laughs> Did um, say it? The guys, right. we have an awesome podcast today. Um, as promised, on Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram, uh, we actually have a new format and a new style of doing these podcasts. Um, we are going to be digging deep into the Bible and theology, and we're going to be answering some questions that have been asked.
1: Give the people what they want.
0: Give the people what they want. So today, you could technically say that this is Grace on Tap 2.0. It's a complete reworking of, of what we've done. Uh, let the, the, the episodes with the intro song, you can tell that that is when Grace, 2.0, Grace on Tap 2.0 officially started. So um, with that being said, as always, what we are going to do is, uh, babe, what are you reading?
1: Funny you should ask. I just submitted my last paper for the semester, so I've not read anything outside of textbooks. Aww. So, check back in a week. So, you were reading your own work? Pretty much. I mean, it's great.
0: It Um, is. It is. I read it. I read over it. I was your editor. Editor Editor-in-chief. And Grammarly. Editor-in-chief of Ashley Evans Incorporated.
1: Also Grammarly, which saved me this semester. I'm a built-in Grammarly.
0: and uh, I'm actually reading a book called Learning Theology by Amos Young. Amos Young is one of the world's leading Pentecostal theologians.
1: I think it's Amos. Amos. Oh, you know what? I thought that said Young.
0: It's Young. Because Chinese. Isn't, isn't
1: Amos Young? Is that the guy from ACDC? I think so.
0: <laughs> or maybe it's
1: Angus Young. <laughs> it's
0: Angus Young. That's right. Oh. Angus. No, I don't even think it's Young. Angus
1: I, at first I was thinking Angus Jones, but I think I was thinking of the kid from Two and a Half Men, who is Angus T. Jones. Hmm.
0: Well, this is not him. <laughs> he's actually a Seventh-day Adventist. A- Amos Young.
1: <laughs> Back to this guy.
0: Amos Young is a uh, Pentecostal scholar. He's a Pentecostal theologian. He's actually with the Assemblies of God, and he teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary in their missions and theology department. So he's... Pretty really legit. Um, this book is essentially, uh, the subtitle is Tracking the Spirit of Christian Faith, and essentially it's about learning to do theology from a Pentecostal perspective, so it's actually really, really good of what I've read so far. Um,
1: the cover looks good. Is it more of a like a popular type, or is it more so on the academic uh,
0: side? It, it's a mix of both. Um, like,
1: it, if you could compare it to another like writer's style or something
0: um I'd probably compare it to one of N.T. Wright's more popular works like Surprised by Hope or something like that
1: so it's it's like palatable for the everyday person but still like a lot of heavy academic in it yeah it's it's
0: every I would recommend it to everyone Uh, even though I just started it today I'm only a chapter into it um I would recommend it for those who are wanting a more uh Pentecostal understanding of theology Uh,
1: not to take away from that but um I've listened to N.T. Wright a lot, but mm-hmm. I've actually never read any of his books. Mm. And I want to do, like, I don't know, like, a season where I just binge all of his books. Every N.T. Wright book
0: I've ever read has given me a headache. But in a good way.
1: Just from it being so much... Is it like, a Bill Johnson kind of thing? Uh, no. Okay. It's not a Bill Johnson thing. Because I take forever to read Bill Johnson books. No, N.T.
0: Wright <laughs> is... Um, I don't know if any of you listeners have ever read an N.T. Wright book, but N.T. Wright is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars and one of my favorite authors and speakers. Um, And I've literally tried to read everything the man has ever put out. Um, But he goes deep, and he goes deep quick, and he is very contextual. So he's going into, like, what first century Judaism looked like, what was Second Temple Judaism, and...
1: He's extremely fluent in it. And if your mind is not already there, at mm-hmm. least within his, like, discussions and stuff, mm-hmm. if your mind is not already in context, you're going to be behind.
0: Yeah. And he, I mean, that's because his his undergraduate was in history.
1: I feel like N.T. Wright, even just listening to, like, podcasts and discussions of him, it's kind of like that class where if you don't read the notes and you show up to lecture, you're already behind. Yes. It's kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. So...
0: Like if you if you're if you're cracking up an NT write book expecting like Stephen Furtick or something like that, you no. you've cracked open the wrong book. Yeah, it's not the, an NT write book isn't something you can read over a latte. An NT write book is something that like it'll take you days to read a chapter and process everything. Yeah. Um well well on top of that though, so I just finished with this Amos Young book. Um I finished before that The Genesis of Good and Evil by Mark T. Smith which is an uncorrected manuscript uh, that hasn't even been published yet. It's not even coming out until January. So um, it's a, it's been a really good book in biblical and historical theology of understanding the, the fall and what uh, the fall of man and original sin really means.
1: Is that where that conversation came from, like, Before. a week ago? How we were talking about the concept of the fall, and, like, I kind of went off on the American view and where it came from and stuff like that? Yes. Oh.
0: Yeah, it's actually a really good book, and it's 83 pages of content.
1: That would be a really good, I don't oh, know. Oh, it will be a
0: future episode.
1: Yeah, because I had a lot to say on that before I even read that. Because mm-hmm. basically whenever I'm saying something that I'm 99% sure is true, but I don't actually have some kind of evidence, I'll just say, I feel like this. Mm-hmm.
0: And we call that eisegesis. But yeah. anyway, well, so um, the... The, the, the second thing, or the third thing, technically, because we're talking about this is the second thing. The third thing that I want to talk about as well is, um, we did haven't really talked about it in a podcast before, but Ashley and I are officially reviewing products from several major publishers. Um, so this uh, Genesis of Good and Evil is from Westminster John Knox Press, as is the Learning Theology book. Both of those were given to us for free in exchange for a review. Um, and we're currently working through Justification by Michael Horton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but another thing as well that we wanted to to talk about and kind of form a transition into our topic is uh, we were given a Charles Spurgeon Study Bible uh, by the Christian Standard Bible. It's in the Christian Standard Bible Translation. It's by Holman. It's a phenomenal Bible. Um, I'm really
1: into the CSB as a translation. Oh, yeah.
0: CSB translation is it's, probably one of my favorites.
1: Because I feel like especially, there I go with the, I feel like. A lot of people I would say our age have been really into like the NIV because it's different from like the New King James or even the ESV. Mm-hmm. I still hold a lot in the ESV. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't get out. But I feel like the CSV is kind of like the translation child between NIV and ESV. Mm-hmm. So it's it's still got that um, a lot of that heavy, original text kind of translation that you find in the ESV Mm -hmm. but it's very modern like the NIV and so I liked that because I've been wanting to try out a new translation but then the ones that have been released in the last decade or so I feel like fall short yeah by miles
0: yeah my go-to translations over the last couple of months have been the NIV the New Revised Standard Bible and the Christian Standard Bible. I'm always going back to those three.
1: I did just pop in the NET though, which I know you really like. I mm-hmm. had just never used it. I've just popped in there to to overview that translation for this podcast and I really enjoyed the notes. Well, yeah, the the, the full They're notes not really version. like regular study notes, but Yeah, the
0: full notes version of the NET is like the, the notes are what that Bible is for. Like that is just that's what that Bible was made for and it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Um, But the the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible was actually sent to us for review by Holman. And um, so as most of you guys know, um, we're not very big on the fact that Ashley and I are Pentecostal charismatics um, who primarily hold to a somewhat Arminian perspective of things. Um, But we do... (laughs) Somewhat
1: Arminian. (laughs) We do
0: enjoy reading... um, Uh, from other authors we do enjoy reading from other perspectives and uh charles spurgeon though he was a reformed baptist um charles spurgeon has formed a very um uh, what's the right word for it he was very foundational in my life so though i never truly held to everything he stated theologically i mean i probably disagreed with him more than i agreed with him on certain things um his handling of the scripture is what inspired me to learn to study the bible better
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: so because i now know where i stand theologically um, and i know how to exegete scripture and and i know how to study um, i appreciate the charles spurgeon study bible because it's it's almost like you are studying with him next to you
1: Mm -hmm. when i I first
0: got the bible i thought it was going to be like journal entries of just like, That's what I thought, too. I thought it was just going to be like the, the CSV text and then just like journal entries and little pop-up facts. I thought
1: that it was going to be like the C.S. Lewis Bible. Yeah. Where it was seriously like journal entries. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and actually what this ends up being, this is a fully-fledged study Bible. So, so I would recommend this to anyone who knows where they stand theologically— but appreciates Calvinist soteriology and appreciates Charles Spurgeon.
1: Where would you place this in association? Because I feel like with Spurgeon you have, a, so like the John MacArthur Study Bible, mm-hmm. which is obviously going to be an ESV. This blows the John MacArthur Cateria Study to. Bible out of
0: the water, in my opinion.
1: Even from like our side of the river on that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I, I would I would choose, if I had a choice between the Ryrie Study Bible the John MacArthur Study Bible and the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. I choose it every time. Hmm. It's just, it's it's a really great, um, really great Bible. Um, the Our official review of it will be posted on Facebook when this uh, podcast publishes as well. So you guys can have, take a look at our full review. Um, we'll also have a link to purchase it on Amazon if it's something that you guys would be interested in. Um, again, if you're not a Calvinist, but you appreciate the Calvinist understanding, this is one Bible that I would really recommend. Um, so yeah, um, and, and here's where the transition point comes. Um, the study notes on the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible are probably my favorite part, specifically in one chapter, and that is Matthew chapter 24.
1: Which is a, a huge like foundational chapter for a lot of people's worldview.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not necessarily their faith, but worldview. Yeah,
0: and it, it shows that Charles Spurgeon held to a more historic understanding of the end times and eschatology um as did many of the other i mean charles spurgeon john wesley jonathan edwards like george whitfield all of these guys held to either. but
1: for people that don't know what that chapter is we can go ahead and let them know what the podcast this episode is about oh
0: yeah absolutely so we're going to be talking about
1: left behind <laughs> oh
0: end times End yeah, times, yeah, or like
1: eschatology. Eschatology,
0: which means the study of Kirk Cameron. No,
1: you. it means the study of end times, or perceived end times. Perce-
0: yeah, it means the study of the end. Yeah. Which should technically be proctology. Okay. <laughs> Butt joke. Anyway. I do. I do
1: like when people say, like, what are your views on end times? I always mention that I feel like... End times is more of a perception because what you're referring to as end times is probably not what I perceive as end times mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Because there's so many different views on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and eschatology and the study of the end times has been something that the church has always disagreed on. There have always been multiple views in the church, primarily regarding um, the millennium. Mm-hmm. So the millennium, if you read in Revelation,
1: Not to be confused with, with the millennium, millennium Falcon.
0: That is true. Millennium Falcon, that's true. I didn't even think about referencing Star Wars if at If you hop in,
1: it'll take you to the end. Carry on. Twelve parsecs.
0: Anyway, um, so the the um, the Millennium is primarily where people disagree. So you have three primary schools of thought when it comes to the Millennium. You have premillennialists, uh, amillennialists, and postmillennialists.
1: Which, again, has nothing to do with the Millennial generation. Yes, um, Does not matter, like, where you buy your coffee, or if you prefer Starbucks, or know, a more locally owned place?
0: Um, so post millennials and amillennialists have always had a tendency to be the well, at least prior to. Gotta be very careful with how I word this. Yeah. Um, a majority of your reformed. Um, I will say a majority of church leaders have either been amillennial or postmillennial.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And at one time, they were both the same group. So essentially, amillennials are just pessimistic postmillennials. And that's, you started seeing a clear break.
1: Well, but, that's what the church does when it doesn't agree on something, they well, just break apart.
0: Well, amillennialism, you can trace back all the way to at least Augustine. Yeah. So prior to that, though, there were some people who held to a premillennial view. Now, with that being said, though, if you read, I believe it's Origin. I believe it's Origin. Uh, Origin makes a reference to a false teacher that was associated with the Apostle John, mm-hmm. and the heresy that he taught. This is what Origin says. I believe it was Origin. It might be Tertullian, but I believe it was Origin, and said that he taught a heresy of premillennialism. So premillennialism hasn't always necessarily been the orthodox view, but it has always been there. Um, It's been
1: an option for views.
0: So we technically don't really know what the original view was.
1: We just know it was highly frowned upon.
0: Yes. Um, So with that being said, so with those primary three views, even within those three views, what most Christians are familiar with is what is known as futurism. So futurism is a subset of premillennialism. So futurism, uh, probably the most common form of futurism is what's known as dispensationalism. Yeah. And so dispensationalism, if you don't know what dispensationalism is, um, you've been living under a rock. Probably because you believe the Antichrist is getting ready to come.
1: I, don't, I wouldn't say they're living under a rock. They just don't know that terminology. So if you break it down into something that they know... Because okay. that's a term that John a lot of Hage, people will fall through and don't understand what the term is. John
0: Hagee, David Jeremiah, Finis Dake, um, trying to think of Late Greek Planet Earth, uh, Left Behind series, all of these form what's known as dispensationalism, premillennial dispensationalism are also known as uh I believe most of those guys are pre trib. So even within dispensationalism mm-hmm. you have three views as well. So uh premillennialism has just like this umbrella effect. So you have premillennialism and then under premillennialism you have you can be a a partial preterist premillennialist, which is what Harold Everly is. You can mm-hmm. be a um a partial or you could be a um what's the word for it? Dispensational, futurist, premillennialist. So you can be a historicist and also be a premillennialist. Mm-hmm. So there's like, all these different views are all kind of, like and if we had, if this was a three-hour podcast, I would try to go into every one yeah. of them and explain them. So I'm just trying to breeze through it so we can actually get into but the you text. you can
1: just throw out a resource on the show notes or something where people yeah. can go further into Yeah, that. check the show
0: notes. We'll have something in there for you guys to, if you guys want to maybe have like an info chart so you guys can look at this a little bit um, better. Um, but dispensationalism, primarily pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-trib premillennialism. Has Did ended... you say
1: meet-trib?
0: I meant to say mid-trib. <laughs> so pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib premillennialism. Pre-mo... Let me say it this way. Pre-, mid-, and post-tribulationalism premillennial dispensationalism. That's a mouthful, but that Mm -hmm. essentially... So those three primary views, the the trip is about the tribulation. So um, different Christians throughout the last 150 years have not really known where to put where the tribulation happened and what it all meant and type thing. Uh, So there have been disagreements on that forever, but here's the main transition point before we start digging into what we believe start digging into the text a little bit more so you guys can see some things and hopefully we
1: mentioned how one chapter is the overall but we didn't mention what that is so when people ask about end times eschatology whatever they want to talk about second coming all these things or the end of the world is used also Mm -hmm. um that's a more like popular not so much in the academic but Mm -hmm. a lot of people I feel like tend to go straight to revelation. Mm -hmm. They go to the end for the end time, which theoretically makes sense Mm -hmm. and it's tied in there. But where we find the true basis of what people were looking for is Matthew 24.
0: Yeah. Most people, whenever something's happening in the world, they reference the Olivet Discourse Mm -hmm. and, and as the sign of like, things are getting worse and worse type thing. Um, but the thing is,
1: in Bible school though, I had to learn the Olivet discourse. My way of of remembering was <laughs> when people would talk about things that are getting bad, and you would say, "Well, what's bad?" They'd say, "All of it," and yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's <is> so sad.
1: <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All of it is bad.
0: Um. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, the Olivet discourse is found in Matthew twenty four, Mark thirteen, Luke twenty one. So we're actually going to be looking at all three of these chapters um, a little bit. We're not going to be like reading all three, but I'm going to kind of show where they, they're, they're very familiar and maybe show you guys some things that you guys might uh, skip over uh, when reading this and you might not know. So, um, yeah, uh, here's a fun fact for you guys just diving into this. So the understanding of dispensationalism, the understanding that there's going to be a future antichrist who's going to put a microchip underneath your forehead or in your hand. Which
1: is every president unless which you voted been, for the other candidate. Which, yeah, which has been every,
0: pres- yeah. <laughs> every president, every pope, every secretary of state, every general, every world leader has been the antichrist at some point or another.
1: Or anyone making money in ministry on TV. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of options.
0: Yeah, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, all these guys are, are the antichrist. Um, but anyway so yeah everyone has always been trying to say who trying to figure out who the antichrist is and there's always been this fear mongering of this person's the antichrist this thing's the 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 mark of the beast this is the whatever and that view is only 150 years old so it originated with John Nelson Darby and was popularized by C.I. Schofield old Darby old Darby Darby and Schofield so prior. Before, um, before Darby and Scofield, this view of a future Antichrist, a future Mark of the Beast, a future all was virtually unheard of.
1: In you the mean church. people in eight hundred A.D. didn't think that six 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 was going to be tattooed on people's foreheads? No,
0: people believe it or not. People before the nineteen nineties did not believe that the hornets and wasps and locusts were going to be Apache attack helicopters. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway. It's um, almost
1: as if they had no uh, like point of reference for that.
0: Yeah, it's true. They had no point of reference for that at all. Um, but that would be that's gonna be a completely different episode for Revelation. <laughs> this is solely about the Olivet discourse. Um Olivet. Guys, there's actually a lot of fear surrounding these texts. I mean, whenever something bad happens, I mean you were telling a story earlier today of, uh, someone you knew whenever there was that fake missile alert for Hawaii yeah. that somebody texted, like, there'll be wars and rumors of wars.
1: Oh, and the God. thing is, is
0: that text has been used for every major war since like the 1850s or conflict, or conflict since the 1850s. I, mean, I remember never...
1: people were saying that on TV when 9-11 happened though. Mm-hmm. That was a huge thing, like, as soon as that happened, yeah. you see all the TV preachers that are theoretically supposed to be bringing, like, encouragement or consolement mm-hmm. to a nation are saying there will be wars and rumors of wars, and this is it, this is where it begins, and everyone wants to attack the U.S. because it says you'll be persecuted for my name, as though the reason there are many Christians is the reason that other nations don't like the United States.
0: Yeah, I think it's funny... And, and I was actually reading this the other day. Um, I think it was... I was actually listening to Mark Driscoll. I was listening to Driscoll oh, teach, Mark Driscoll teach. And he was talking about... It was one of his final teachings for the Resurgence. Resurgence 2013. Oh. And um, he started talking about American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And um, how under American evangelicalism the last 500 years, suddenly America became like the new Israel. Like, so whenever anything happened to America, people had to immediately read that into biblical prophecy.
1: Mm -hmm. And we're actually
0: going to address that a little bit because there are a couple things in here that do not make sense if you read it that way. So if you guys have any friends or family members that are constantly watching the news and they're, you know, in a bunker somewhere reading their King James Version, Matthew 24, send them this podcast, even if you have to... Put it on a Do people
1: guide. who listen or that read the King James Bible listen to podcasts sometimes? Oh, yeah, only uh, if you translate them into a manuscript.
0: <laughs> they don't care about manuscripts or they wouldn't read the King James version. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and get into Matthew chapter 24. And um, we're only going to t- today at least because I plan on coming back again eventually. Uh, we're only going to be doing Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35. And then we might pick it up again at another time and go through it again. But let me read it. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let one on the housetop go down and take anything out of let, let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter on the Sabbath. And they're not talking about American Airlines. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one one would survive. But for the the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the Son of Man in heaven. and Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it is twigs gets tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will never pass away. So it's a pretty hefty chunk of text, um, and there's a lot there, and I've probably heard this passage of Scripture taught at every youth camp I have ever been to in my life, usually taught in a fearful way to get students to believe that Jesus is about ready to come. so
1: well why else would you say it?
0: That's true to the
1: modern audience.:
0: Yeah, so um trying to figure out what would be the best place to get started. Let's just start with the the context of what's being said here. So a lot of things that—one thing that a lot of people don't really know is some biblical scholars actually believe that Matthew was written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek. There's actually a church father who records this. I forget his name for the life of me. Um, But Matthew is primarily written to a Jewish audience. That's why he continually says kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God because Jews would not say the name of God. They would only yeah. say heaven as a placeholder for the, the, the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So contrary to dispensational teachings, there's not a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They're the, the exact same thing. Also, another note is Matthew 24 is only one small section of an overall narrative. It's actually the crescendo of something that's been happening for the past couple of chapters. So if you go back and you start with Matthew chapter 21 and you read to Matthew chapter 25, you get Jesus's time in Jerusalem. And what's happening throughout all of this, Matthew 21 to Matthew 25, essentially, uh, culminating here in Matthew 24, is Jesus is proclaiming judgment against Jerusalem, the temple leaders, the temple system, everything it's proclaiming judgment for killing the prophets for, for not upholding the law. Like he's, he's saying you guys have failed. And, um, which,
1: I mean, if you look at the covenant, some like it, that had to be closed.
0: Yes. It, it, it's
1: not like Jesus dies new covenant. Yeah. Which no, is a whole nother conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be for a, 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 it's like a series on atonement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so his his audience, Jesus's primary audience hearing all these things are the... So Matthew's audience are Jewish believers, or, or Jewish unbelievers, and this is a gospel meant to be proclaimed to people. Uh, but Jesus' audience hearing these things are people in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. people who, who would have understood what was being said. It's in fact, if you go back, it's interesting, um, if you go back and start with Matthew chapter 21, Mark the many times Jesus' is, Jesus says this generation. Yeah. So what? Uh, which some,
1: means the generation in which he spoke, yeah. not whatever generation you are reading in.
0: Yes. So that's that's a common technique of, of some dispensational Bible teachers. They will point to Matthew chapter 24 verse 34. It says truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away, and they'll say, "Yeah, the generation that starts seeing these things take place," and then they'll put mm-hmm. that generation sometime way off in the future. Um, but the truth is, is that Jesus has said this generation multiple times in this Jerusalem narrative, mm-hmm. and every time he makes that statement, it is in reference to the people who are hearing him proclaim these judgments,
1: who are under the rule of Rome and this temple system. Yes. Yep.
0: So that is the context of, of who Jesus is talking to. That is the context that Matthew is writing to. And with that, you start diving into the text a little bit more. So Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to his attention to its building. Do you see all of these things he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I find it very, very interesting that most dispensational teachers want to rebuild a temple to fulfill this prophecy.
1: Even though the whole point of it was to Mm -hmm. what what a lot
0: of people don't know is that the temple in Jerusalem, and this kind of forms the context as well. This okay, so keep this in mind. Jesus is proclaiming this, most scholars believe in AD 30. So 30 AD, somewhere Mm -hmm. between 30 to 33 AD. And he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And in 70 AD, 40 years later, which, which is, is a, a, biblical, generation. a biblical generation, 40 years later, within those 40 years, the entire city of Jerusalem and the temple complex is leveled. In fact, Josephus records that not one stone was left on top of another. Not in those words, but he records that the the Roman soldiers came in and took down stone by stone by stone,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, and that the the actual foundations were like plowed up. Yeah. So, with that being said, uh, continue on. So
1: let's not rebuild the temple. Let's not
0: rebuild the temple.
1: The whole it's point a- of this was to destroy the temple system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to
0: build it back up. To rebuild the temple would be a slap in the face to Jesus.
1: Well, and all these Jews who died.
0: Yes. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will it be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?
1: That's a big one. Age.
0: Age. <clears throat> so some translations, um, mainly the King James Version, um, and I believe the New King James Version as well. Um, say world
1: mm-hmm. what
0: will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world so people will read that and say well the temple hasn't been destroyed yet so we've got to rebuild it so that it can be destroyed again because then that will be the end of the world but the thing that's being said here is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age yeah. now first century Jews and I try to steer, still steer clear of making blanket statements like this But early Jews held to a dual age view. They believe Mm -hmm. that they're in two primary ages. The Mosaic age. Age as in
1: like an era.
0: Yes. So the Mosaic age and then the age of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so the context of what the disciples are asking is, what will be the end of the Mosaic age? Meaning the end of the law, the end of the temple system that Jesus had just prophesied against from Matthew 21 and onward. He's not only prophesied against the temple, he's prophesied against the religious rulers, he's prophesied against the temple, uh, against the city of Jerusalem itself. What will be the sign of coming and at the end of this age? Mm-hmm. All of this magnificence of Moses. Mm-hmm. So, with that being said though, something that's often missed, if you look at Matthew, or if you look at Luke 21, 5-7, you kind of get a little parallel view of this. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So then you read back in Mark again, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 2 through 4. Do you see all of these great buildings? replied jesus not one stone here will be left on another every one will be thrown down as uh jesus was sitting on the mount of olives opposite the temple peter james and john and andrew asked him privately tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled so the context again and again and again is people read this and they'll say well this is a three-part question what will be the sign of uh, when will this happen won't be the son of your coming and won't be the son of the end of the age but if you read all of the all of that discourse in context so you read Matthew 24 you read Mark chapter 13 and then Luke 21 the context is the judgment against Jerusalem and the temple yeah that is the primary focus because that is the Mosaic age
1: which is, I feel like, from an American standpoint, not understanding 70 AD, understanding history behind this, it's very easy to look at things like the temple and think that it's just a church that's being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Not understanding this is an entire system yep. of government, of culture, like everything, life as they know it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a a big church is being destroyed. It's life as you know it is about to end.
0: Yeah, which is what Jesus means in Matthew 24, verse 21, where he says, For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So what happened in 70 AD, for some of you guys who don't know what happened, in 70 AD, the Roman armies came and laid siege to Jerusalem, slaughtered somewhere between 1 and 1.2 million Jews, destroyed the temple... Uh, slaughtered all of the priesthood, so all the living priests, and destroyed the genealogical record so that the priesthood could never be established again.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and this is historical, this isn't just a book in yeah, the Bible. Yeah, this is,
0: this is very, very historical. So I always say when you're studying the Bible, always have a history book present because yeah. that gives you some of the best context that you could ever have.
1: Yeah.
0: So in 70 AD, when all this is going on, um, It was the worst thing that has ever happened to the Jewish people. And I make that statement knowing about the Holocaust. Yeah. Because this is the main difference. The Holocaust, millions of Jews died. One of the saddest events to ever happen in world history. And
1: that's not to minimize the Holocaust. No. Or even persecution now. No,
0: it is one of the, the worst and saddest things that have ever happened in human history. But the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., was worse in the sense that it not only killed one to 1.2 million Jews, it destroyed their entire way of life. Mm-hmm. It destroyed the temple system. It destroyed the priesthood. It destroyed the genealogical record so that they could never rebuild the the, the priesthood again to offer sacrifices. And if you study in history, this is when uh, temple focused Judaism completely shifted to rabbinic-focused Judaism yeah. to where now it's all synagogue-focused. Mm-hmm. This completely destroyed the Jewish way of life as mm-hmm. they knew it. This was world-ending. This this was the end of the Mosaic Age. Mm-hmm. So, with that being said, we continue on. Verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many um church history records that at this time in history so after jesus resurrects to 70 a.d there were countless i i can't even remember the exact count i believe uh, one of the church history historians records it it was like over a hundred false teachers But there was
1: like eight major ones that had like a big following
0: yeah there were a couple major ones that had a huge following that like led people out into the desert and they like Killed, they were legit remnants. like
1: working miracles and stuff like that.
0: Though. Yeah. So what you read in verse six, this is another huge point. Verse six, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. And so this is the point that everyone goes to and they're like, no, see, because wars are happening. That's a sign of the end.
1: Wars have been happening, throughout wars the have been happening
0: time. since the, yeah, wars have been happening since the beginning of time. Um, here's why this statement was made. Jesus made this statement during the Pax Romana. Yeah. And if you don't understand history, world history, the Pax Romana was known as the Roman Peace. Mm -hmm. It is a time in Roman history where Rome never had a major war. They may have had little skirmishes and, like, the outskirts of their territories and stuff like that, but they never had a nation fight against another nation. They never had their kingdom fighting against another kingdom. They had little insurrections that they would go in and put out, and then they retreat. It was like nothing to them. So you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. And, guys, right around 70 A.D., all hell started breaking loose yeah. in the Mediterranean world. That's why Jesus well, you is— got
1: a- Crazy man as a ruler at that yeah. time.
0: Guys, Nero, like, was...
1: Legitimately, like, completely out of Demon his Demon-possessed.
0: Like, this yeah. dude was ridiculous. And so around the time of 70 AD is when you literally start seeing wars, rumors of wars. You start seeing kingdom rising against... Na- uh, kingdom, nation rising against nation. Guys, let me say this as well. When you see kingdom against kingdom and nation versus nation, contrary to what every major... Prophecy Bible teacher has said that does not mean race versus race. Yeah. Jesus is not prophesying race wars. That is a complete misinterpretation of what this word means. Yeah. So, anyway, keep on going. Uh, which is verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So, famines and earthquakes. What happens in the early chapters of Acts? There's already proclaimed famines. Yeah. There's at the time of Jesus' resurrection, there's an earthquake. You read about a couple other earthquakes as you get into Acts.
1: Historically, there were a lot of earthquakes yes. happening around Some that time. Some of the biggest
0: earthquakes ever recorded in human history happened between 33 AD and 70 AD. Yeah. So you continue on. All of these are the beginning of the birth pains. And then, this is another one of the big ones. Another one of the big ones. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Then you will be handed over and will be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, in order to actually understand this verse in better context, let's go to actually Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Luke chapter 21, verse 12 says this, But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues, and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors all on the account of my name. I doubt that during a futurist interpretation of the end times that there are going to be synagogues so powerful that they are able to take on the church. Because that that's what you literally have to read into this, that there are yeah. going to be synagogues. Synagogues are going to be in power. Guys, the only time in world history, only time in world history that Jews and and the Jewish system and synagogues have ever had that kind of power is before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Think about Paul with the the signed letter from the synagogues and the temple going out and persecuting Christians. This is what this is pointing to. This is what Jesus' prophecy is pointing to. This is not a future thing that is happening.
1: And again, contextually, you look at, even there, you don't have the government in the same pockets as the synagogue yeah so it's like their christians rising up was not the end of their government was Mm -hmm. not the end of like overthrowing because that even goes in when when you talk about zealots and stuff like that is they're they're trying to overthrow the reign yeah of their government which is keeping them slaves essentially yeah um but that's a different
0: topic. So different then you get into verse ten. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's this a is big what one. the this is what the book of Hebrews is written about. Yeah. If you read the book of Hebrews in context, it is, I believe Paul personally. Paul is telling a predominantly uh, Jewish believers to not go back to the temple yeah don't go back to the old way of life that's why the, if you could if you could uh, summarize the book of Hebrews it is Jesus is better like I understand that you guys have the temple system and, and then the blood of bulls and goats and, and all this stuff and that you guys are suffering persecution but Jesus is better and I would even argue, this is for a future podcast as well, that a lot of the statements regarding someone losing their faith is actually regarding this. and Going not.
1: back to the temples Yeah.
0: Fun. So, and this is chapter... Verse 14 is a big one.
1: I want to do another podcast about that. That would be really fun.
0: Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations.
1: Now, does that mean every every standing country that is currently established? No. That whole world? No. I meant that sarcastically. I, know. I don't know if that was conveyed via podcast.
0: <laughs> and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, guys, what if I told you ...that the gospel of the kingdom had been preached to the whole world prior to 70 AD. That would blow some of your minds, and you guys would probably look at me like I'm a false teacher or a heretic. Um, but the word that's actually being used here for whole world is the Greek word ukemene. And the Greek word ukemene means known inhabited world and usually referred to the Roman Empire the, the yeah. spread of the Roman Empire. It's actually the same word that's used later on in Luke when it talks about the census that was taken by the Roman government. It mm-hmm. says that um, the Caesar took a census of the whole world. Obviously, he did not take a census of China and Japan and South America. He took a census of the known world or the world that was under Roman influence.
1: Which is a big portion of the world at that time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, of the known world at yeah. that
0: time. And guys, if you do a study on this, I would encourage you guys to do a study on this. Paul references several times. I don't have the scriptures in front of me right now. Paul references several times how the scriptures, how the gospel has been preached to all creatures under heaven. That has been reached the whole world. It happened then. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation.
1: That's a big one, too.
0: Spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So first, right off the bat, let the reader understand. Uh, Matthew obviously is saying, hey, guys, wink, wink, nod, nod. You know what this is. Mm -hmm. So we obviously have a time discussing and trying to figure out what it is, but the original readers knew what was being talked about. I think it's funny, in Luke chapter 21, uh, verse 20 is a reflection of this exact same scripture, but it's worded a little differently. Here, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. It's the exact same thing. Exact same thing. The abomination that causes desolation is the Gentile armies on the temple grounds. It is the Gentile armies invading the temple. It is the Gentile armies destroying the temple. That is the abomination that causes desolation. So, here's where we get into a big cultural point that I think we often skip over after this part as well. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. So, a literal interpretation of this This is the thing that dispensationalists will say. Well, I'm a literalist. I read the scripture as it says. I only believe what scripture says. I take it literally.
1: Oh, you're going to have a fun time with all those poetry books.
0: Yeah. So so if you're going to read this text literally, Joe Blow in Atlanta, Georgia, when the end times are kicking up, needs to buy a plane ticket and fly to Judea to run to the mountains to hide from the Antichrist and destruction of the world. Seems that is
1: complicated. That
0: is a literal interpretation. yeah, that yeah. seems very complicated. Uh, and then the second part of that, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Who in the world in modern times has a housetop? who, who stays on housetops? This is obviously a reference to the first century.
1: yeah
0: this, the the hills of Judea, the mountains of Judea, and people living on their housetops at that time in Israel. You spent a majority of your time on your housetop. Mm -hmm. It was like your living room. Yeah. Essentially. So you slept and you ate and stuff below, but on top is where you rested. And it was just kind of like your leisure time. Oh, okay. Um, Let's see. Let's, um, that's kind of the the main parts. Um, Do you have any questions? Me? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no guys we already discussed all this beforehand
1: um I think a, a a fun point to point to is verse 24 though um for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect yeah um one of the things I used to run with the crowd that was very heavy and like they, there was a cessationists heavily um i say calvinist for that within that um and this was a scripture that they would use to convince people to not follow anyone that performs signs wonders and miracles it was Mm -hmm. always a big thing against bethel which is like the target practice for most yeah um even charismatics a lot like point towards bethel uh, Mm -hmm. with an issue um so, yeah, the people that are performing signs, wonders, and miracles, they make it as though they are the false messiah. Yeah. But it, it just goes back to the one how we talked earlier, how there were those false messiahs, and yeah. they were even performing signs, wonders, and miracles. It wasn't just a random dude that showed up and was like, follow me. Yeah. Because you're going to need something to follow up <laughs> with Jesus. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I believe don't know who it is. I believe so, like uh, Jonathan Welton in his book, rapturist actually records um, several great points about this. I believe that at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there were actually several great signs yeah. that, that were uh, supposedly happened in Jerusalem by people who stood up and said that they were their Messiah and they were prophets and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff.
1: Well, and um, a lot of those were zealots too. Mm-hmm. And that's again, it goes back to they wanted someone like a zealot they yeah. wanted the hardcore overtake the system because that's what they were enslaved to they didn't want the peaceful one yeah the the gentle one they wanted the guy that was going to slaughter them all and, yeah. and get them out of there yeah um and so that was so appealing to them it so if you follow up with that and be like no i am actually the messiah let's go overthrow this government yeah and that that's appealing
0: yeah Yeah, I think um, that that was one of the primary, um, when they saw the army surrounding Jerusalem. So when you read back into, um, let no one in the housetop go down or take anything out of the house. Um, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Josephus records, actually, that not a single Christian was killed in the siege of Jerusalem because... The Christians, when the destruction of Jerusalem was happening, remembered this prophecy from Jesus, and mm-hmm. they ran across their rooftops and got out of the city of Jerusalem and actually went to the mountains of Judea to get away from it.
1: Now, what would you say to... Because a lot of people will hear that and say, well, if you hold to that, then you're saying that God is anti-Semitic. No. So what would you say to that? I
0: would say no. I'd say that the 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 destruction that's being talked about is not against Jews, mm-hmm. because many of the early Christians, the Christians that were in the city of Jerusalem, were Jews as well. Yeah. The destruction of Jerusalem, the the this could, I mean this could be a whole podcast on wrath yeah. on what wrath is. Wrath is covenantal punishment.
1: Mm-hmm. So you
0: think all the way back to when the law was given and you read all the way back in Deuteronomy there was a change between covenants you read back in Deuteronomy and the people um, in Deuteronomy when the the Covenant leaders being transitioned from Moses to Joshua there's a, a transition statement that's that's made where uh, Moses and Moses essentially goes all right here's the new terms and conditions of the Covenant can you guys do it and they start listing off the new requirements of the covenant and they're saying, Amen, we will do it. Amen. We will so do it. it's
1: not like how we just scroll and click I <laughs> accept. No. They're no, going through each no. one. They're, they're aware.
0: Well, what happens is, is at the very end of it, Moses just goes, You guys are going to fail. And it's going to be brutal. You done
1: messed up, Aaron. <laughs>
0: you, guys, you guys are going to fail. And it's going to suck. And it's going to be bloody. And it's going to be awful. This, this destruction of the Jewish way of life, of the Mosaic temple, of, of not just the temple, but of the Mosaic understanding of the law, had, the destruction of it was prophesied all the way at the back at the time it was actually given. So this wasn't something new. Wrath was promised. Wrath was promised at the very beginning of the giving of the law. So the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. is God's wrath against the constant. Um, so, so what is atonement? Just, just to touch on atonement, atonement wasn't, um, atonement wasn't like diverting God's wrath. Atonement meant to cover, mm-hmm. so it was covering over offenses. Well, when a new covenant was made, all these other covered over sins and atonements like were opened up. And so what's being poured out on Jerusalem in 70 AD is all of the wrath for breaking all of those covenants for however many years, coming back down onto the covenant itself.
1: So for those 40 years between 70 AD and the death of Jesus was actually this awkward overlap Yes, it was and an overlap covenants. between the Old
0: Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, which is why Peter later on talks about patience. God has had patience. And he's, that's, that's why Paul, again, like, if you read Romans and you don't hear his heart for the Jewish people, mm-hmm. of like, I wish myself, like, damned for the sake of my kinsmen. I would rather that know Jesus and me be damned. Yeah. So he knew what was coming. The early Christians knew what was coming. It wasn't a secret. So, um, yeah, to to say that this view is anti-Semitic, I would just say that you, you don't understand what's happening here. Yeah. So, final point. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Guys, this is the same thing essentially Jesus says way back earlier in the same book of Matthew where he says heaven and earth will pass away, but uh, not one jot or tittle from this law will pass away. Guys, heaven and earth, as recorded by Josephus and several other rabbis, um, even though Josephus wasn't a rabbi, but several rabbis record that heaven and earth was a euphemism for the temple. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven and earth was a euphemism for the temple.
1: Not physical heaven and earth.
0: Not physical heaven and earth. This, all of this, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, um, when you read back where he says that not one tittle will pass away uh, until heaven and earth passes away. Heaven and earth passed away. Christians are no longer under the law. No one has been under the law for 2,000 years, no matter how hard they try. Mm -hmm. It is impossible with the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the priesthood, with the destruction of the genealogical records, it is impossible for anyone to fulfill the law in any way, shape, or capacity at all. So hopefully, you guys, this podcast, um, we're going to be digging into more topics like this as we continue um, to, to carry on into grace on TAP 2.0. If you guys have another topic that you guys would love for us to cover, maybe go a little bit in-depth, let us know. Send us an email um, or message us on Facebook. Comment uh, on this link that we'll post on our Facebook page. Um, Do you have anything you want to say, babe?
1: I think just the takeaway is that you don't need to live in fear of the scary thing of the comets falling from the sky to to destroy it all. It's actually... um, dare I say, victorious ending. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, your eschatology can be victorious.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, there, there's some few uh, further reading that I would recommend as well. Victorious Eschatology by Harold Everley, Raptureless by Jonathan Welton, um, uh, The Fall of Jerusalem by uh, Kenneth Gentry. All of these are phenomenal. Uh, the End of the World According to Jesus by R.C. Sprawl. Um, Some of these books, guys, I'm telling you, you will have a lifetime of um, just digging into these books and getting new insights into what's happening here. Uh, But as Ashley was saying, the takeaways, uh, Christians are no longer under the law, nor have Christians ever been under the law. No one has been under the law. It is impossible to live under the law. Um, Second point, there's no need to live in fear.
1: I think it's also important to say that... In unpacking this, you're not saying that Jesus is not returning.
0: Yes. That that will be, is, that'll be that'll a separate episode. That's a
1: different talk for a different day, and that's not what we're saying.
0: Yeah. Um, so just to whet your appetite for a further episode, there is a difference between Christ's second coming and his appearing. So I'll just leave it at that, and we'll talk about that in a future episode where we actually dig into actual eschatology yeah um we'll, we'll actually dig into some of those texts that paul talks about about being called up to the sky to meet jesus and all that fun stuff
1: but uh, let's look at eschatology 101
0: yeah this is eschatology 101
1: for um, grace 2.0 all the
0: numbers <laughs> That's matthew
1: 24 and the year seventy eighty.
0: It's like a history lesson, a math lesson, and a theology lesson all wrapped well,
1: up Well, I in like one. to give a lot of cultural context and how it applies to today, too. So I'll throw out 2018 in that, too. Yeah.
0: All right, guys. This the is end. the year of no more fear. Love you guys. Bye.